Well, amen. I want to give you some reasons today as we look at Luke 24 that we can boldly approach the throne of grace based on Christ's death, but also his resurrection. We're going to look together at the resurrection of Jesus. I remember it was 1988 and John Williams and I were assigned a genetic engineering project together. Now, he was really smart. So was I for that matter. Uh, but he was smarter in this particular area. His dad was actually a genetic researcher. And we did the project together. And as we were working on this genetic research project together, it became very clear that he was an atheist and did not believe in the Bible. So much so that he says, well, all Christians are idiots. Kind of was offended. And then he said, and why would I believe a book written by a bunch of fishermen anyway? To which I said, well, if those fishermen wrote a national bestseller, a historic bestseller that changed Western civilization, you might want to pick it up. And by the way, by the time we did the project, it turns out Christians aren't that stupid after all. One of us got an A. Or one of us got a B minus. Just saying. But I think there's a common idea that there isn't evidence for what we believe. And we're going to look at Luke 24 today and the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But to get a feel for just how radical this story is, if you were going to make up a story and communicate it to that culture, you would never, ever, ever tell it the way Luke told it. Here's what it might have sounded like if you were listening to the story in today's words. I want to try and convince you that there was an alien visitation to Cincinnati last year around Christmas. On December 26 of 2018, uh, a UFO landed in Fountain Square. And as it came down, um, it landed on December 26. So I got a thousand plus people to sign a petition to no longer celebrate Christmas on the 25th. But instead, we're going to move it to the 26th to celebrate Alien Visitation Day here in Cincinnati. What was interesting is I didn't personally see the UFO come down, but I met some, uh, some drunken hobos who were there at the time, and they actually saw it and told me about it. Now, they told some alien chasers who were there. The alien chasers did not find them credible, but I did, and I'd like you to believe in it. Now, what's interesting is when they came down in Fountain Square, uh, Bob Costellini and Anthony Munoz were there having lunch. And they actually noticed that as the aliens came down, there was actually a ramp, and the aliens looked just like Santa Claus. Santa Claus came down, walked them over to Fountain Square and said, I was actually here several years ago, and I inscribed on Fountain Square, oh, sure enough, this date, December 26, 2018, so you would know my return. Would that sound credible to you? You would say, no, first of all, I know Bob or I know Anthony. I'll call them up. They're still alive. Were you there? No, this is not a true story. No, these are actual places, actual sites, actual dates. You're not going to get a bunch of people to stop celebrating Christmas on the 25th. With that story in mind, wait till you see how what Luke does has all the components of what I just described. In fact, the key verse is rather fascinating. That Peter does not believe that Jesus is raised. Doesn't have any expectation of that. And yet when he runs to the tomb in our key verse, look what it says in the key verse. It says, Peter runs to the tomb... And finds the clothes, the the linens laying there, and he marvels. What? At what could have happened? What, What happened here? See, the key verse here describes somebody who marveled at the account. Marveled at the moment. And I want to help you marvel at the moment. We're going to look at examining the reasons for the resurrection... 
And then we're going to look at four ramifications of the resurrection. Now we're going to move kind of quick because there's going to be nine of them embedded in the text. Now let's read the text together. I want to show you the different reasons. They're they're sort of bullet-pointed up here for you. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Then it happened. They were greatly perplexed by this. And two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is risen. Remember, they said, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, but on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Peter arose, ran to the tomb, stooped down, saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, departed, marveled to himself at what had happened. So let's begin by examining the reasons for the resurrection. You just saw all nine of them, but we're going to dig in them together. Let's examine the reasons for the resurrection. The first one is mentioned in the first verse, the first day of the week. Now on the first day of the week, Jesus was raised on a Sunday. This will become so significant historically that from this point around 33 AD on, thousands of Jewish people who have celebrated Sabbath worship day on Saturday, going back to Moses, will switch their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. It would be as ludicrous as people changing in our community celebration Christmas from the 25th to the 26th, unless something significant, otherworldly, had happened. It's so significant, in fact, that the day of worship was switched around this time in history. That people like Dan Brown from the Da Vinci Code and others have said, no, that's not true. If it was true, it would be compelling, but it's not true. The first day of the week did not get changed until way, way, way in the future under Constantine, 350 A.D. Which sounds like a pretty bold claim until you look at the evidence. We have hundreds of manuscripts showing that the day was changed from Saturday to the first day of the week, Sunday, way before 350. In fact, the Bible itself references it twice in the book of Acts and the book of Corinthians. Look at the manuscript here. Next slide. In Acts, it says, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul spoke to them. They've switched from Saturday to Sunday. Paul mentions in Corinthians, on the first day of the week, each one of you lay something aside. Bring your gifts and tithes and offerings when you celebrate the day of worship. At this point, we're writing somewhere between 30 to 50 A.D., Now, we've got letters from the disciples' disciples. We call them the church fathers. And we have their manuscripts written well before 350 A.D. Barnabas in 100 A.D. says, Wherefore, we Christians keep the eighth day, Sunday, for joy. Why did we switch that? On which also Jesus arose from the dead, and when he appeared, ascended into heaven. Justin, writing in 150 A.D., And on the day called Sunday, there's a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a rural uh, city or a rural district. And there's many, many more. The day of worship got shifted. Something otherworldly happened to have thousands of people change their day of worship. 
Second, these are the wrong witnesses if you're going to have a farce. If you want to produce a farce, you would not have made these the witnesses. It would be like me saying the drunken hobos for two reasons. Number one, in that day, shame on them, Josephus records that women were not declared viable witnesses in a courtroom. So if you were writing this story to that audience, you would not use women as the primary ones who found Jesus' body, unless it was true. And you certainly wouldn't mention people by name who were knowable. He mentions Mary Magdalene and Joanna. I want to focus on her for a second. Joanna was the wife of Chuzza. So what? Chuzza was very, very well known. He was the CFO, money manager, of King Herod. King Herod was the wealthiest man who's ever lived. One of his palaces is here in Masada. Eleven swimming pools, a fully functioning sauna at 6 BC. This is one of his eleven palaces. His CFO's wife found Jesus' tomb empty. This would be like me referencing Bob Costellini or Anthony Munoz. You'd say, they're still living at the time of the writing of this. I can call them. I can visit with them. I can ask them if it's true. He writes, one, women finding the tomb would be not credible, my hobos in the story, and then people that were well-known and living at the time that they could check out. You would not use these witnesses and these names if you're going to institute a farce. It's the CFO. It'd be like me saying, Melinda Gates found Jesus' body at the tomb. It's that radical. Three, there was a lack of expectation for the resurrection. I mean, if you're going to tell a story, it wasn't even something the Jews were thinking about. In fact, the women left that day carrying spices to go to the tomb because the body stank. They did not in any way expect there to be a resurrection, and they wouldn't have. From the Jewish worldview, there were really two views on resurrection, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection at all. Oh, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in resurrection, but not like here and now, way, 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 way at the end of time there'll be a resurrection. But there was no Jewish even belief or understanding that you could come back to life now in this life at this time. So again, if you were Luke and writing about this, you wouldn't make this story up because the audience wouldn't even be looking for it. Fourth, the stone was rolled away. Now this is significant. When they arrived, the stone has been rolled away, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, why is this significant? The Pharisees and Sadducees and the Romans did not want the Jesus myth to continue. So they had four centurions guarding this thing at penalty of death. How did the stone get rolled away? If four centurions who could take on a hundred men were protecting it. Something radical had to happen. And because that happened, many began to tell stories of how the disciples stole the body. Right. A bunch of fishermen overpowered four Roman centurions. But clearly the body is missing because even one of the emperors cites the idea that there was a missing body. After Christ's resurrection, Claudius Caesar issued a decree for people to stop stealing bodies from Judah's sepulchers. Without realizing it, he was confirming the body was missing. And no one could produce it. Next, the missing body. Where was that body? You see, when they walked into the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And there was high motivation to find it. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Romans, the Greeks, anyone who wanted to disprove the Jesus movement, which was everybody, could have easily stopped it. He's not raised. Here's his body. If they coulda, they woulda. And they didn't. The best they could come up with were stories that it was stolen, which is ridiculous considered how it was guarded. The body was missing. And it was high incentive to provide the body to discredit the entire story. Luke continues. It's not just a missing body. This is, would be a very perplexing concept for a Messiah. In fact, even the disciples and the women at the tomb don't really get it when the angels explain it to them. They arrived and they were greatly perplexed. Why is, this, why is the body missing? No understanding that the Messiah would die be raised and come back to life in this world here and now. So much so that the angels have to say to them these words. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living? He's living now among the dead. He's not here. He is risen. Now, the Jews, because of their understanding of resurrection, would not have bought into this. But the same thing was true for the Greeks and Romans. Maybe you remember the river Styx. Not the band, you know. Da, 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 Mr. Roboto. Not that Styx. In the Greek-Roman legends, this river Styx is what happened when you died. You crossed the river, you paid the toll to the Grim Reaper-looking guy, and then you made it over to the three-headed dog creature, and then you were in Hades. In the Greek understanding and Roman understanding of, of death, this Messiah concept wouldn't have caught on either. Because if you're Homer, you couldn't have imagined there was a way back from Hades. And if you're Plato, you wouldn't imagine you'd want to come back. Because this world is a shadow, the substance is the world to come. So this whole concept of coming back to life on a real earth and a real place was foreign, foreign, foreign. Foreign to the Jewish worldview and foreign to the Greek-Roman worldview. But the soldiers say, I mean the, the, the angels say, our next reason fulfilled prophecies remember in the same way in my story you could go and remember see it was carved into fountain square exactly what was going to happen prior to this date jesus for three years the angel says remember how he spoke to you when he was still in galilee he said the son of man must be delivered into the hands he must die he must be crucified and three days later in advance to what happening three years i would rise again and like i do remember him saying that I just had no idea what it meant. You would never make up a story like this. Next. It's not just the fulfilled predictions that he made. There's also biblical ones as well. But it's the disciples' lack of faith. Like in my story, if the alien chasers don't believe the story, why would anyone else believe the story? The disciples don't believe. When the women, the non-credible witnesses of the day, come back and say, He's risen, an angel told me so. The disciples who hang out with him for three years say, uh, no. That sounds like nonsense. Idle tales. They did not believe them. Now, if you're going to set up a new religion and you want to be the leader of the new religion, would you tell the story like you were not believing the main essence of it? Unless it's really what happened? The disciples' lack of faith is not how you would tell the story if you were making it up. But the next piece of evidence is the disciples' radical transformation when they realize he is risen. 
The empty tomb transforms their lives. That's why they marveled when Peter came into the tomb and saw the linen clothes and Jesus appears to him. He goes from like, couldn't talk about Jesus in front of a little girl, I don't know the man, to Acts 2 Pentecost. This Jesus who you crucified is resurrected. The boldness and the courage. The disciples, well, because of their, not their belief, but their seeing Jesus alive, will be boiled to death. Skinned, crucified upside down. One will be tied up and watch his, his own daughters raped and murdered in front of him. Demanding he recant. And his daughters, while being raped and murdered, say, Dad, do not recant, do not recant. Wow. What would give you the courage to face death? And this kind of suffering, but for some type of otherworldly, true event that you had witnessed. See, there's a bunch more actually in that text. I just could give you nine. Evidences and reasons for the resurrection. I had a CSI investigator hired on stage here about ten years ago. Describing why the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as well as James and a few other accounts in Peter, are accurate historic accounts. I said, now as a CSI investigator, when you're trying to see an eyewitness account, how do you know if it's true? He said, well, there should be a general agreement on the flow of the story, and there should be apparent contradictions in the details. So that's kind of odd, because there are apparent contradictions in the Gospels. One angel, two angels, mentions Joanna, doesn't mention Joanna. He said, when you come upon a a crime scene investigation, if everything all the witnesses say are exactly the same, they probably rehearse the story. It's just too detailed. Yes, and, and after I took three steps, I saw the green car. And after the green car, I turned left, waited two seconds before I went up and opened the door. Next witness. Yeah, I, uh, I took three steps and I saw the green car. And then I waited two seconds before I... It's too rehearsed. There should be apparent contradictions that when you examine them, you go, oh, this person was emphasizing this to this audience. This thing made this particular vantage point. They didn't see this part versus that part. I said, when you think about the gospel accounts as a CSI investigator, are they credible? He said, without a doubt, they meet the eyewitness test. So much so that several years ago, I think it was three Easter's ago, I had a giant sail up on stage and we had a boat here and we had different scrolls representing the different historic documents for Jesus' resurrection. Matthew scroll, Luke scroll, Mark scroll, John scroll, the book of James, and Peter. We have over seven different historic perspectives on Jesus' resurrection. Now people say, well that's circular reasoning because you're arguing the Bible from the Bible. Well, they didn't used to be in the Bible. Somebody just duct taped them together for you to make it convenient. These were separate historic documents that somebody fastened together. So it's not circular reasoning to quote the Bible. It's just somebody put these different historic evidences together for you. It was after that Easter service that a man came up to me who's a lawyer here in our church and said, you know, I've been religious my whole life. I've been attending for many years. But this was the day I became a follower of Jesus. Because you laid out the evidence, and I realize faith is not the absence of evidence, it's the confidence that this is true. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we're doing this here in this passage, in this series today. 
We're equipping you in our equipping service to know why you believe what you believe, to know the evidence for it, so that you can answer people who ask the questions. Don't ever say, well, you know, there isn't evidence. That's what faith's all about. Don't ever say that. That'll make me very angry. That's ignorance. Ignorance is the lack of evidence. Faith is putting your confidence in the evidence of who God is and what he did. And that's why we do what we do. Now, if the, if, if the resurrection is true, what difference does it make? Let's spend a little time rubbing the ramifications of the resurrection into our lives. All right, I want to give you four. The first ramification, if Jesus was raised from the dead, is eternal reunions. I will see grandpa again. I will see my daughter again. I will see my son who passed away before me. I will see my relatives again. It's the confidence of eternal reunion. You can know you're going to heaven. You can know that when you hitch your your faith to Jesus, he will raise you the way he raised himself. Not I hope, not I wish, not maybe I'll get to heaven if I've done enough stuff. Based on what he did for you, not what you did for him, you have entrance to heaven. And those who went before you, you will see them again. I remember my wife's grandfather's funeral. We're at the graveside, actually. Many family members didn't have religious belief, and they didn't even let their kids come to the funeral because it was too depressing. We brought our kids. They were quite young. This is, this is grandpa's body. You know why we put grandpa's body in a box? It's kind of weird, really. Because it says in Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise first. Grandpa's not some spirit floating around. His spirit didn't get disintegrated and be reassembled to something that's not grandpa. Grandpa is an eternal being made by God. His body has died, but the dead in Christ will rise first. He'll get a brand new body, be reconnected to his soul and spirit, and he will live eternally with a real body. And we're going to see grandpa again. And that's the hope of the gospel. And Grandpa had Alzheimer's those last couple of years and slowly started forgetting everyone. His wife, his granddaughter and grandson. I would sit with him and talk about his favorite book, the Bible, and his second favorite book, Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, all about the rapture and Jesus' return. And occasionally I would reference, in the beginning. And Grandpa and Alzheimer's would immediately launch into the entire first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he went on and on and did the whole first chapter of John, even in late-stage Alzheimer's. See, my hope of seeing Grandpa again was his hope. That resurrection is not just you're going to get to heaven, but you're going to get heaven with no more Alzheimer's, and no more pain, and no more aches and pains, fully restored And it's not that we go to heaven. The book of Revelation says heaven comes to earth. You like what's going on here at earth? You get to spend eternity here. Only it's a renewed earth with no disease and no sickness and no pain and no betrayal and no natural disasters that hurt people. Imagine everything you love about earth and heaven brought together. That's what the Bible actually describes as a reality. And you can rub that hope as you're getting older and your body's not working the way it used to and you got this replaced and that replaced. Or maybe you're at a place where somebody you care about can't eat anymore and the hope of resurrection, the ramification of resurrection is you will eat again and you will see straight again and you will think straight again. That's one of the ramifications. 
The second is that when you understand that this life is, is not all of life, that you begin to engage in risk-taking love. You risk your life for other people. It doesn't make any sense if you have one life to live. Why would you give it up for someone else if this life is all there is? But if this life is merely a chapter of your real eternal life, then love other people, risk your life for other people, give of yourself in in big ways for other people. Rodney Stark is a sociologist and historian. And he says that where Christianity really made its mark was between 200 to 250 A.D., A black plague went through the Roman Empire. So bad, in fact, that 5,000 people a day were dying. Anyone who had means got up and left the Roman Empire to to save themselves. And that's, that's fine. That's understandable. But it was the upper middle class and upper class doctors and nurses who were Christians who stayed in the cities. They also were dying, but they were helping Because Jesus said, what you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. And though the emperor was blaming the Christians for the plague, even though they were dying too, there was a brand new type of community formed as doctors and nurses and Christians helped the poor and the sick and the hurting. You see, in the Roman Empire, you didn't care about other people, the family unit. If you had too many kids, you actually would throw throw them out because you didn't want to get knocked down in the caste system. To love your stranger, to risk your life for someone else, This became such a foothold for the gospel that it transformed the Roman Empire. They'd never seen love like this, that you would risk your only life for someone else. But Christians understood, this is not my only life. This is a chapter of my eternal life. And if God risked his life for me and died for me, how could I not risk my life for others? So I don't know what that looks like for you. Instead of rotating your life around how comfortable you could be, what if you rotated your life around how you could love other people even at great cost to yourself? Will you give yourself for others? Your time, your effort, your convenience. That's what resurrection's about. Third. The third hope of resurrection is that it gives you soul-changing power. Now, in the book of James, it says something very interesting that most people read, I think, incorrectly. In the book of James, it says this. Receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save your souls. To which most people read that passage and go, implanted word, that's either the Bible or Jesus who is the word. Receive that, okay, receive Jesus in your life, and it saves your souls, get to heaven. I want to propose to you that saving your soul does not mean get to heaven. That is true, that the Bible does get you to heaven, but it's so much more than that. So let's talk about what saved means. Let's take what soul means. Because something that gets implanted in us can save or deliver our souls. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about who we are. God is three in one, and he designed us in his image. So you have three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Your soul has three parts. Your mind, what you think. Your emotions, what you feel. And your uh, willpower, what you desire. Now, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, God told them, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And you read it like, well, they didn't die until later. Well, they did. 
they immediately died in three areas. Their body that was made to be eternal is now dying. And it will eventually die. But their souls died that day. They were thinking thoughts that were dead thoughts. God's mad at me. I'm ashamed. I'm naked. I'm afraid. They had bad feelings. God's out to get me. I can't trust God. God's holding back on me. Their will. They now wanted things that God didn't want them to have. Like the knowledge of good and evil. So death came into their soul. But death also came into their spirit. They have a dead spirit. Which is why if you understand the Bible's main uh, framework for understanding the human problem, it's not we're bad people who need to be good. Because bad people could work harder and be better. The main framework for the Bible is that we are dead people who need to be made alive. You can't undead yourself. But you could make yourself a little bit better. In which case, you'd get credit for yourself and become proud and arrogant because look how hard you work to go from bad to good. But if the spirit uh, dead alive metaphor is the one to work from, if you find some aliveness in your soul, it's because something outside of you breathed life into you and brought life into you, which brings more and more dependence and humility. So, Jesus' resurrection is very, very practical. Receive the implanted word. So when you ask Jesus to be your forgiver and leader, what happens is your dead spirit is replaced with a new spirit. The resurrection spirit, the Holy Spirit, is placed in you. You now who were dead in Christ are now alive in Christ. You now have an engine living in you that's not you, that is the Holy Spirit. Receive in you the implanted word that's able to save your soul. Now the Holy Spirit's in you. He can deliver you from dead thoughts about God. Dead thoughts about yourself. Dead thoughts about the world. You renew your mind as the Holy Spirit begins to deliver and transform your mind. The feelings you have, self-hate, feelings of proud arrogance, look how good I am. Those dead thoughts get saved and transformed by the fruit of His Spirit in you. You say, I don't even want to do what God wants me to do. What I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. You say, God, I found some dead spots. Can you breathe life into my will that I would want what you want? That I would trust that your will for me is better than my will for me? Remember the old movie, Sixth Sense? I see dead people. A true Christian is like that. I see dead people all the time. Walking around with dead thoughts and dead will and dead emotion. When you look at your own heart and you find betrayal, lust, and you say, I'm going to try harder next time. Well, try that. That's not going to work. Instead of trying harder next time, say, God, I found a dead spot. I'm a lustful person. And I'm lusting after something besides you. I found a dead spot. Could you breathe life into these dry bones? Breathe life into my will. I want to be able to love my spouse the way you love the church. I want to be able to forgive my enemies and I don't want to. But you forgave me when I was your enemy. Breathe that spirit into my will. I don't want to be financially generous because I feel like that's my security. But God, you tell me in your Holy Spirit that my real treasures are in heaven where moth and rust cannot touch them. So help me see that the money I have is your stewardship to, to, to give it away to your kingdom priorities because of how generous you've been to me. 
This is how resurrection transforms your soul. And then one day you'll die. And as you get older, you realize your body is certainly not operating the way it was when you were 20 or 30. You don't have to convince, I don't have to convince you of that, right? Your body will one day die and be put into a grave. And your soul and spirit, to be absent from the body, is to be immediately present with the Lord. But later in the future, at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ rise first. The body is transformed. You get a brand new body and you're put back together with your soul and spirit. And then you can live eternally on a renewed heaven and a renewed earth that come together. This is the vision of heaven. And with that comes a fourth ramification. It comes right here. You got a down payment on heaven when you became a follower of Jesus. It's exactly how it's expressed in Corinthians. Who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's almost like a, an escrow or a down payment of things to come. The reason you can be eternally secure and confident that you're going to heaven and you can't lose it later is because God has given you a piece of heaven right now as the guarantee that you're going to get to heaven eventually. He gave you a down payment of His Holy Spirit. This is the promise. This is the down payment. This is the guarantee of resurrection. That what I've done to resurrect your spirit now is the confidence you can have that I'm going to resurrect your body later. This is justification. This is glorification in the future. And this is sanctification, which is the process by which a Christian uses resurrection power now to transform their mind, transform their will, and transform their feelings. It's all about resurrection. Which is why as a Christian, the most important thing you'll ever learn, ever incorporate, ever do in your life is to rely on resurrection power. To transform, to change, to love. Will you rely on resurrection? When you have doubts about Christianity, and we all have them, will you go back and examine the evidence and go look at all the evidence historically that Jesus was physically, bodily, actually huggable, touchable, raised from the dead? You can have confidence in that. And you can rely on resurrection when you have a doubt. Is Christianity just one of the many ways to God? Did this really happen? Did it really happen in history? But practically, rely on resurrection for how you transform your heart and your soul and your mind to living out what it is to be conformed in the image of Jesus. Don't try harder and get more and more arrogant because you're doing well or more and more crushed because you're not. Rely on resurrection so when good stuff pops out of your life, you go, wow, the fruit of his spirit, his resurrected spirit coming out of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for coming to earth, defeating death, defanging death, and rescuing us from our own dead spots. Father, show us what it is to live the life you've called us to and breathe your Holy Spirit's resurrection power over each one of us today. That wherever our dead spots are, we would feel the courage, the patience, the passion, and the might of the resurrected Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.